Well, I want to take a second to say good morning to each of you that are in the room today, as well as those of you that might be uh, watching online. If you have a Bible with you or a copy of God's Word, if you please turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, and uh, as you're finding your place, I have a couple questions I want to run by you as we start this morning. How many of you, by a show of hands, have felt like 2020 has been the longest year of your life. You feel like this year will never end, okay, a lot of people. How many of you have felt like 2020 has added five years, or taken five years away from your life? Anybody says that, okay. How many of you have ever heard of a disease called deep vein thrombosis, otherwise known as DVT? Every year, between 60 and 200,000 people will die from a medical condition known as deep vein thrombosis, otherwise known as DVT. Usually what happens is the DVT occurs in a person's legs where the blood will begin to pool. It will then clot. And then the issue is and the danger is that it might circulate to the lungs or to the brain where it can cause respiratory failure and even a stroke. But the tragic thing about DVTs is not that it's caused by bad eating habits, irresponsible behavior, or bad genetics. The tragic thing about DVT is that it's caused by simply laying down for too long or sitting for a long period of time. And today, as we open the Bible and we look at Revelation chapter three, we're gonna look at a church that had this exact disease spiritually, in the sense that they were so spiritually stagnant, they were almost dead. They had this disease in the sense that they had become so self-reliant on their wealth and their cars and their house, they had forgotten about their reliance and their dependence upon God. You see, this church was actually in a city called Laodicea. It was an important city. It was a wealthy city, had a significant Jewish population, and they were known for being financially independent. They were known for being a hub for medical advancement, and they were known for their clothes. Everybody wanted to dress like them. It was kind of like a modern-day Atlanta, so to speak. The place was booming. However, one of the main problems in Laodicea at the time was they did not have a main water supply within the city. And so in order to get water to be able to live and to survive, they had to pipe water in from a couple of different places. And so this made living uh, a little bit tricky and it made the leadership a little bit kind of standoffish and made them to be kind of compromising and kind of, oh, you do your thing, we'll do our thing. And rarely did the leaders in the city stand up for what they believed in because they were so afraid of someone just coming around the city, building a barricade, blocking off the water and boom, they would be dead. This filtered down from the leadership all the way down to the leadership in the church, all the way down to the individual believer, and this was kind of the embodiment of who they were. Mediocre and stagnant, almost dead. So here's my question this morning. How do we avoid being the church nobody wants to attend? How do we avoid this this stagnant uh, uh, issue of being a believer? How do we avoid being this church that nobody wants to attend? If you have a Bible, copy of God's Word, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me 
gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, and white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, have dinner with him, and he with me. The victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So how do we avoid being this church nobody wants to attend? Number one, we must honor the claim of Christ. We must honor the claim of Christ. Look at verse 14 once again. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So here we see the writer of Revelation, John, is working through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing this specific letter to this church in this city called Laodicea. And so basically he opens his letter up by saying, here are three major areas I'm gonna compare and contrast of what, of what uh, Jesus is versus what you uh, think you are, who you think you are. And so he says, here's what Jesus is and here's what you should strive to be. The first thing he says is he is the amen. Jesus is the amen. This is a reference actually back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16 in the Old Testament in which God is called the God of faithfulness. But in the Hebrew language, it means much more than he's just the God of the amen or God of faithfulness. This word that's used there, it means to guarantee its truth. It means to certify something. It means that God can be trusted beyond all doubt. In other words, if Jesus says something, you can take it to the bank. If Jesus says something, you can count it as a fact. In fact, this is kind of the whole premise of the Christian faith that we believe that Jesus was who he said he was. We believe that uh, Jesus can be trusted all, beyond all doubt. Why? Because not, he created you, number one. He loved you, number two. And number three, because he sent his son to die for you. So when we talk about honoring the claim of Christ, this idea of honor is kind of diminishing in our culture. It's kind of fading fast. But in their culture, it would have been, meant a lot more to them. Specifically, uh, honor was, had to do with the way that you live, not just the words that you said. Kind of reminds me of the phrase that you probably heard growing up, you are what you eat, all right? You probably heard that at some point or another. You know, if you're gonna put junk food in your body, trash in your body, Little Debbie cakes, zebra cakes, brownies, Mountain Dew, Coke, all right? I love junk food, all right? Don't, don't judge me. If you're gonna put that in your body, you're eventually going to get bad results because you are what you eat. But on the flip side, if you put good things in your body, fruits, veggies, protein, you're eventually going to get good results. You are what you eat. It's kind of the same principle with who we worship and what we worship. You are what you honor, you are what you worship. And so it's what leads Thomas Carlyle to say this. He says, show me the man that you honor and I will know what kind of man you are. Show me who you serve, show me who you worship, show me who you honor and then I will know what kind of man or woman you are. So he says, he's the amen, that's who Jesus is. Then he says the second thing, he is the true witness. Then he says, he's the true witness. Now, a witness in that day must have been affirmed in three different categories. Number one, they had to have seen with their eyes what to report on. They must be absolutely honest and report with complete accuracy. And then they must have the ability to communicate what they say. So they gotta see what they can report on. They have to be honest and report with complete accuracy. And then they must be able to communicate 
what to say and what they saw. So if you think about Jesus and not only what he said, but also in what he did and who he was, he perfectly satisfies all three of these conditions. He can speak about God, why? Because he is God, he was the God man, 100% God, he was 100% man. And we can rely on his words because he is the amen. He's able to communicate his message to us today through the power of his word, but also through the power of his Holy Spirit working in our lives. And he spoke as if as no one else did in all of human history. Yet over and over again throughout the pages of the Bible, we find that we are called to be witnesses of Christ. We are called to be disciples of Christ. We are called to be followers of Christ. The only way that we can be witnesses, disciples, and followers of Christ is because he is the ultimate witness. He is the faithful witness. He is the true witness. So he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And then the last thing John says to kind of open up here is he says, He's the originator, otherwise other translations might say ruler of creation. Now for those of you that have been here the last couple weeks, Dr. Merritt has talked about John chapter one uh, extensively and I think this points right back to that verse in John 1, 1 which says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Furthermore, in Colossians 1, 16, the Bible says, in him all things were created. Created. It's a reference back to, all the way back to Genesis in which there's this little phrase that says, let us make man in our own image. Now, why would that be plural? It's, it's to go to show you that not only was God the Father involved in creation, God the Son was involved in creation, and God the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. He was before there was such a thing as time. And it blows me away to think that every person sitting in this room and every person watching online today, that God created you just like he wanted you. God could have put you in any other time period in all of human history, yet he chose you to go through 2020. He chose you to have a toilet paper shortage. He to chose you to go through this craziness and wearing masks and all this stuff that we are doing right now. He chose you to be living in a city somewhere uh, on the outskirts of Atlanta right now. He chose you to be in this service or watching this service online right now. He chose you to be born into the family that you were born into. Why? Sometimes we might know, not know all the answers. Sometimes we might never figure it out. But God always has a plan. God always has a purpose. And he is always orchestrating that for our best interest. You see, the claim of Christ defines who we are, how we act, and how we live because he created us. So are you honoring Christ for who he is in the way that you live? We must honor the claim of Christ. But then he moves on in verses 15 to 18, and he says, all right, now you have to heed the challenge of Christ. Now, it's where the rubber meets the road, now you have to heed the challenge of Christ. And this is where Jesus gives us kind of uh, two distinct challenges as kind of like, think of it as like advice from Jesus. And it, let me let you know a little secret here, open the back door. Anytime Jesus gives us advice, let's take it, okay? That's always plan A. And so he kind of gives us two upfront things that he's kind of challenging us with in verses 15 to 18. In verse 16 is where the first one is. He basically just says, all right, stop being lukewarm. Look at verse 16 together. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, in order to kind of set the scene for you, now let's go back to that specific day. And remember I mentioned earlier, they didn't have a main water supply within the city. 
And so they had to pipe water in. And so there's gonna be a graphic on the screen in just a moment. And there's two specific places they would have gotten water. Number one, they would have gotten water from the north, a place called Heropolis. Okay, that would have been a piping hot water from those hot springs that would have piped it straight down to the city of Laodicea. Okay, the other place they would have gotten it from is to the southeast a little bit, a place called Colossae. Okay, so that water was actually freezing cold, and by the time that water got there, it would have been lukewarm. And by the time the, wa- the hot water from the north got there, it would have been lukewarm. So you start piping hot, freezing cold. By the time it gets to Laodicea, it's gonna be lukewarm. The water they drank, the water they bathed in, the water they used every day for cooking, the water they were so used to would have been lukewarm. So when Jesus says this through John, this would immediately, bam, it would have connected. The water they experienced every day would have been lukewarm. And this idea of lukewarmness, of mediocre, of just kind of a eh type of attitude was exactly what the church embodied. That was kind of their DNA and their makeup. And so we sing a lot of great songs here at Cross Point, but I want you to kind of imagine walking into a church service in Laodicea and singing some songs like this. We might sing the old song, I Surrender All. You might remember that song. They would sing, you know what? I surrender some. Not really all of me, just some of me. We would come in this room and sing, you know what? My hope is built on nothing less. You know what they would sing? My hope is built on nothing much. Not a whole lot, my my faith is built on, not a whole lot I have trust in, all right? We're just kind of mediocre, we got money, we're good to go. We would come in and sing, he's a good, good father. They would sing, nah, ordinary, ordinary father, nothing special about him, that's the God that we served. Last one, they would sing, we would sing, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. They would sing, what a typical name, the name of Jesus. Of Jesus. This is kind of, did they actually sing this? Absolutely not. But this is kind of the mindset of when they were walking to church, what they felt like. I got my nice sports car. I got the nice clothes. I got the best house. Check the box. I'm good. I'll come to church. Ease my conscience. And they went on about their life. Nobody wants to sing those songs. Nobody likes mediocrity. It's stale. It's average. It's lukewarm. And indifference will eventually kill you. And in a spiritual sense, being lukewarm is also a picture of indifference. It's also a picture of compromise. But you see, both cold and heat have benefits. Lukewarm does not have a benefit. If you th- the best way I can think about this in my mind is like the icy hot commercial with Shaq. All right, you know when he gets the icy hot patch, you know, icy did all the pain, hot to relax it away. You know, and he puts it on his back right there and Shaq's like dunking a basketball after it. You know, it starts off icy cold, it's dulling it, you know, he's got, he pulled something in his back or fake pulled it in the commercial. He's like, oh, it feels good. And then all of a sudden it switches from freezing cold and it goes to blazing hot and it finally eases the pain away. A patch would do you no good if you just stuck it on your back and said, yeah, it's, room temperature's fine. Yeah, a cool 68 sounds good to me. No, 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 it has to be either cold or heat. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He says, guys, there's benefits of cold. There's benefits of heat. There's no benefit of playing in the middle. You have to choose a side. So the first command here, this first challenge up front is like, all right, stop being lukewarm. But then we move to kind of verses 17 and 18. And this is where kind of like, I think about two boxers before they're getting ready to fight, you know, they're weighing each other and they're like standing beside each other. They kind of come closer. Now it's like, okay, we're getting there. And he says, guys, you have to open your eyes to your own spiritual poverty. You have to open your eyes to your own spiritual poverty. Look at verse 17. Because you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't know that you are, and get this, I mean, just a slap in the face, wretched, 
pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, you can't get much more insulting than that right there. Yet Jesus, through John, is coming to the people. He's writing this letter. And once again, we see this comparison game. And he's gonna say, here is who you think you are. Here's when you look in the mirror what you think you look like, but here's actually what you are. Here's who you really wanna be, but here's the reality check of who you are, all right? So there's three, three comparisons here he makes. Number one, he says, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You see, they thought since they had acquired wealth, they had a nice sports car, business was booming, they had a five-bedroom house, they had a pool out back, that they were set. They were complacent. This is a very, very dangerous place when we reach a point to where our dependence is upon ourself and our dependence shifts away from God. You see, if the Bible says actually that if all we have is our earthly wealth, that we are actually poor. Because one day we're gonna leave that all behind. This is why Jesus, in verse 18, if you skip down a little bit, it's why he encourages them to buy this gold that was refined in the fire. Now, why would he say that? Because he knows that if, they're, if they had a faith that was refined, if it had been through the fire, if it had been pressed, it had been pressured, it's gonna come out better on the end than if it had never gone through that at the beginning. So he says, why don't you come and buy from me this gold that's been refined through the fire that I can give you, then that's what's gonna make you rich. Not your car, not your house, not your wallet, no, no, no. He says, what makes you rich is the condition of your heart. See, Jesus is never gonna look at your wallet, your closet, or your car. He's only concerned with your heart. But then he says, okay, you're rich. You think you're rich, but you're actually poor. Then he says, you think you're clothed, but you're actually naked. Now, this is, in my opinion, might be the biggest slap in the face to these people. Why? Because they prided themselves on their clothes. I'm not a, I'm not a fashion guy, okay? But they, they probably had like the Gucci shoes, you know what I mean? They, everybody wanted to dress like them, you know, the nice skinny jeans up front with the Jordans on. I mean, everybody in the day would have said, I wanna dress like the people in Laodicea. I wanna go shopping at the outlets in Laodicea. Man, they have the nicest stuff and everybody wanted to be like them. Yet in that day when this was said, you're, you think you're clothed but you're actually naked, this would have been a high, high insult in the day because they lived in this honor and shame culture. You see, being naked in that day was the worst form of humiliation anybody could ever go through. And there's examples of this in the Bible, I'll give you a couple. Number one, the threat to Egypt is that Assyria will what? Lead its people to be naked and barefoot in Isaiah chapter 20. You also look that God's threat passed on by Nahum is that the disobedient people, he says what? I will let the nations look on your nakedness and the kingdoms on your shame. And probably the best example of all is our Savior, Jesus Christ, was, he died on a cross naked for the sins of the world. Yet on the flip side in Scripture, we see that being clothed is the highest honor. So naked is the worst form of humiliation. Being clothed is the highest honor. A couple examples of this for you. Pharaoh honored Joseph by dressing him in fine clothes, which was the highest honor. Garments of fine linen. Daniel is clothed in purple by King Belshazzar. And in the story Jesus tells, when the prodigal son returns home, what does the father do? He puts the best robe he can find. Not just any robe, the best robe he puts on it. Yet in the text today, in Revelation chapter three, Jesus challenges them to put on white clothes. Now, why is that little detail significant? Why would he slip that in there? You say, why white clothes? White clothes can only come from Jesus. 
You say, how do you get white clothes? White clothes comes when you come to a place in your life when you recognize that you were in a sin debt so deep you cannot get out. And you recognize that your sin separates you from a loving God, yet God loved you enough that he sent his one and only son, the most precious thing that he had, to this earth, to be born of Mary, to live a perfect life, yet to die a sinner's death. And it was on that cross as he hung there naked that he took your sin, your shame, your guilt, and your rags, and he put it on himself so that all you have to do is if you profess the name of Jesus and you believe in him, it's at that moment, instantaneously, you know what happens? He takes the white off of himself and he gives it to you. He takes your rags, he takes your filth, he takes your shame, he takes your guilt, and he says, put that on me and let me give you the clothes that can only come from me. Let me give you the clothes that are a sign of holiness and perfection and purity that come directly from the throne room of heaven. So he says, why would you settle for any other clothes on this earth when you can have white clothes that come straight from heaven? See, they thought they were rich, they were actually poor. They thought they were clothed, but they were actually naked. But then the last comparison he makes here is he says, you think you can see, but you're actually blind. You think you can see, but you're actually blind. You see, Laodicea, the people in the city, they prided themselves on this famous eye salve that they developed in their medical school. I mean, this would have been billboards, newspapers, Pinterest, Facebook ads, all right, TV ads. It would have been absolutely ever. They were so proud of it. However, they thought that they were so good in medicine, they just continually boasted about this eye salve. Yet the crazy part and the irony of this whole story is that they were blind to their own poverty. They were blind to their own nakedness. And it's a great reminder for everyone in the room every one of you watching online today, that we cannot truly be in a relationship with God until we recognize where we're at, until we see actually where we're at, that we are sinners separated from God and that we are in desperate need of a savior. But it's at that moment when we give our life to Christ that we get a new pair of spiritual glasses and now we can see that God is working among us. Now we can feel the Holy Spirit in our life and we can begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I just went to the eye doctor recently because I'm going blind myself. Uh, but did you know that being blind can be costly? Being blind can be costly. The world economy falls short of 227 billion every year from lost productivity among adults who need glasses. 4.2 billion people around the world are affected by poor vision and need glasses or contacts. And of those 4.2 billion, 2.5 billion lack access to glasses or contacts. And of the 2.5 billion that need glasses or contacts, 624 million are visually impaired. So don't miss this. Furthermore, providing affordable access to reading glasses alone would boost productivity up to 34% and would also bring down levels of illiteracy which cost the global economy $1.19 trillion each year. Poor eyesight, being blind is a trillion dollar issue. And for the people in Laodicea, this is exactly where they were at. This is exactly how they felt because they were so blind they were lost. They were so blind they could not find their way. They were so blind they had forgotten all about Jesus. Their spiritual blindness was devastating not only to their church body but also to their individual lives as well. Are you listening to the challenges of God in your life. But then we move to the end of our letter this morning. 
in verses 19 to 22. Say, okay, we gotta honor the claim. Okay, we gotta heed the challenge. Okay, boom, boom. Now we have to hear the call of Christ. Now we have to hear the call of Christ. So these last few verses are probably some of the more uh, well-known verses in all of the Bible. And a quick search through the internet, Pinterest, uh, or Facebook will find you kind of the imagery that we see in these last verses. And we find in these verses that Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking on the door of this house waiting on somebody to open it. Do you wanna know church this morning? You wanna know when your church is in trouble? Do you wanna know when it's time to really examine what's happening inside a church? If Jesus is on the outside and he's trying to get in, that's when you're in big trouble. You better recognize something's wrong here, pump the brakes, sound the alarm, we gotta have a few meetings in here because it's not going to be good. Yet the picture that we see here regarding the church is that Christ is there and he's standing at the door and he's knocking. He's calling out to them. And it's in verse 19 that he kind of gives us the first challenge or the first call here. And he says, guys, you have to accept my discipline. Accept my discipline. Look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Did you know that God disciplines those that he loves? This is a quotation all the way back to Proverbs chapter three and verse 12 that shows us that those who are closest to the Lord, those that have a relationship with the Lord are the ones that he loves and disciplines the most. You see, discipline is a theme throughout the entire Bible. God disciplined many of his people. Yet, God's final punishment is not gonna be a severe form of discipline. No, no, no. God's final punishment is actually an absence of discipline. It's actually when he's gonna be shunning people away from his goodness and his glory and his majesty forever. So he says it here, when you're disciplined, know that I love you, know that I know what's best for you, and when I discipline you, you know what you should do? Be committed and repent. Our actions should not be to question, should not be to pout, should not be to go in a corner and cry, should not be to go and gossip to our friend about what I'm going through, no, no, no. He says when you are disciplined, he said be committed and repent and turn back to me. But then we get to verse 20, and he sums it all up. Look at verse 20. He says, guys, you have to accept my solution. Look at verse 20. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. So remember, the question we asked at the start of today's message was what? How do we avoid being a church nobody wants to attend? How do we avoid settling for mediocrity? How do we avoid being a lukewarm church? We've worked our way from verse 14 all the way down to verse 20, and the answer is standing there flashing at us right now. It's very, very clear. We have to open the door. The answer is very clear, and that's to simply open the door. And this imagery we see is Christ standing at the door of every human heart, at the door of every church, begging to get in. What does this let us know about who Jesus is, about who Christ is? Number one, he's at the door of every human heart. You know what that means? That it takes every other religion and it puts it to the side. You know why? Every other religion says, man, you go find God. Man, you seek God. Man, you do all of these works, stack them up, and it might be good enough to get you eternal life. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Then you talk about the Bible. Then you talk about Christianity. You know what happens? 
God flips that on its head. God says, you're not finding anybody. I already found you. I already loved you. I loved you first. I sent my son Jesus to die for you. So when we see Jesus standing there and he's knocking at the door saying, will you please open? It lets us know that he is number one, a loving God and he's giving us a chance to open the door. And I love that in verse 20 because he says what? I wanna come in and have dinner with you. He's not saying, look, I wanna go and grab like a you know, 20 minute coffee or just a quick breakfast in the morning. No, 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 no. Dinner was another highest form of honor back in the day. If you shared a meal with someone, it was meant that you were best buddies. It meant that you were pals. So when Jesus says, hey, I want you to open the door. I want to walk right through it. I want to have a meal. I want to share time with you. I want to bond. I want to get to know one another. I want to fellowship with you. He's saying, I don't want to just cast you to the side. He says, no, no, no. I want to fellowship with you if you'll just open the door. And especially for believers in the room, it can be very easy for you to sit there and say, yeah, I know where this is going. This is just a message for people that don't know Jesus to be saved. This is just a message for them. However, if you read the ending in verse 22, it kind of puts that right back in our face. Look what it says. Anyone who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Anyone who has an ear. He's saying, if you're in Laodicea 2,000 years ago, if you're alive 1,000 years ago, 100 years ago, sitting in this room today, watching online today, wherever you might be, he says, this is a word for you. So what is God's call today? It's simply to open the door. Even though they were stagnant, even though they were mediocre, even though they were lukewarm, yet we still see a picture of a loving God standing at the door saying, will you please open the door? God in his grace, God in his goodness was still giving them a chance to respond to him. He was still giving them an opportunity. And before we end today, I wanna share a quick story with you. Some of you might have heard this before. It's about the English word opportunity and where that word comes from. The word that we get opportunity from is, is from the Latin ob, Porto. It was coined a couple hundred years ago when uh, people lived by the sea. They were dependent upon the sea. They were dependent upon fishing and travel, uh, and it was important to live near water. Today, modern harbors control everything that goes out, everything that comes in, down to the very second. However, when the word ob portu, this Latin phrase, was exercised when it was invented, it wasn't that simple. People were kind of coming and going in, not really knowing what it looked like. And so in those days, in order to get to port, which is literally what ob portu means, to port. In order to get to shore, to get to port, they had to wait out in the ocean for a period of time before some factors were right. And once those factors were right, then they could go into port. So three things had to be right in order for them to make it safely to port. Number one, the water had to be deep enough. Number two, the tide had to be right. And number three, the wind had to be right. Any one of those factors are not in order. They could either be stuck at sea for hours, they could be going the complete opposite direction, or they could have, worst of all, a shipwreck. And so I want you to do this with me. I want you to imagine you're on a boat. For those of you that love fishing, go ahead and imagine you're out there fishing. You're coming in from a, a fishing voyage, all right? Maybe you don't like fishing, you say, you know, you wanna go on like a 2,000-year-old uh, redneck kind of cruise, all right? And you're out there, you're coming back on this wooden boat, and you're coming back in. Put yourself there. Think about a boat in the middle of the ocean. Think about what that might feel like. You smell in the salt water. Ah, you, you feel the rays of sun coming down on your head and you're like, mm, 
I got the sunscreen. You're like, mmm, I smell those fish guts. There's something laying out there, and you're smelling it all in. And it's that time, you're like, okay, it's time to go back in. It's time to head back to port. And you go back, and all of a sudden, you see this little strip of land start to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's at that moment, you remember the captain's instructions when he said, hey, guys, when it's time to come in, all three of these factors have to be right, and then we'll say, ob portu, and then we can go. You're ready to go in, you're starting to, whoa, on the boat, and you're like, I forgot to take my Dramamine, it's not gonna be good. You're like, can I just get back to land? 30 minutes goes by, land's getting bigger. An hour goes by, and you're stuck in the same spot. Hour 45 goes by, you're stuck in the same spot. And finally, as you're approaching the three-hour mark, the captain stands up. He means business. And he starts pacing aboard the boat, and he's judging these factors. And all of a sudden, without notice, he stands up, and at the top of his lungs, he yells, Ah, Portu! Ah, Portu! Ah, Portu! And it's in that moment that you recognize the water is deep, the tide is right, and the wind is right. And it's at that moment the sails go back up. You find a paddle, you find an oar, you find anything you can to start rowing so you can make it to port safely. Why do I tell you that story? Because for some of you today, this is your ob portu. This is your chance. For quite some time, you've been running. You've been saying, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I come to church with my mom. I come to church with my, with my family member. But I just come to sit, check the box, and leave. This is your ob portu. You've been drifting. You're not, not really hot. You're not really cold. You're lukewarm. You're trying to find a way out. And all of a sudden, in your life, everything is aligned. You recognize who Jesus is. You recognize what Jesus did for you. And coming in this room today, watching online, driving in the car, wherever you're at, and you finally recognize this is your ob poor too. Water's deep. Tide is right. And the wind is right. This is your opportunity to surrender your life to Christ. Maybe you've wandered away from God. Maybe you don't really know where you're at spiritually. This is your chance because God in his majesty has Jesus standing right there at the door, waiting on you to open the door. The only question is, will you let him in? With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody else looking around. I wanna invite each of you to examine your own heart, to examine your own life, not worrying about anybody else. And maybe you're in the room today, maybe this is your first time watching online. Maybe this is your first time in this very room today. Maybe you've been coming for quite some time yet. There has never been a moment when you have surrendered your life to Christ. There's never been a moment when you've understood what the gospel actually means. And for the first time today, you understood that you have a sin debt you cannot get out of. There was a price you could never pay. Yet God in his love and in his majesty sent the most precious thing that he had, his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth, to die on a cross, to pay for your sin debt. If that's you, you're watching online, you're in the room today, and you want to have a relationship with Jesus, would you just pray something like this in your heart? Just say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. 
I admit that I have fallen short of your grace. I have fallen short of your goodness. But Father, today, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose from the grave. And God, today I confess that you are my Lord, my master, and my savior. Now with nobody else still looking around, every head still bowed, every eye still closed. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time and you meant it, I want you to do something for me. You're in the room, you're watching online. I want you to take out your phone. I want you to do either one of two things. Either go to crosspointchurch.com slash decision. That's crosspointchurch.com slash decision. Or just do this, text yes Jesus to 56525. Yes Jesus to 56525. Either one of those ways will get you to the same place. You say, why do you wanna do that, Micah? We're not gonna bombard you with thousands of emails, thousands of phone calls, thousands of text messages. No, 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 that's not our intent at all. We would love to simply have a record of you saying yes to Jesus and to be able to come alongside of you and to partner with you and to be able to help you understand what it means to have a relationship with the God of the universe. You say, well, maybe you're a believer in the room But for quite some time, you've been putting off this idea of baptism. Maybe being in front of people kind of scares you a little bit or or getting in water scares you a little bit. For whatever reason, you just haven't been biblically baptized. If that's you today, if you're online, would you please uh, put something in the chat? Let Let our folks know. We would love to be able to talk to you about what baptism actually means. For those of you in the room, as you leave today, if you'll please go out to the connection point table, we'll have a staff team there ready to talk to you about what baptism looks like and what it actually now, everybody looking up here as we end. You say, okay, Micah, you just gave the invitation for the non somebody that doesn't know Jesus. You say, what is in it for me? What about the believer in the room? Maybe you're ob poor too. Then it's time for you to stop walking in this church and walking right back out, never meeting people, never serving, never being in a small group, never giving to this church. Maybe it's time for you, as we close the book on 2020, to step up to the plate, to get off the sidelines, to get in the game and say, God, where can you use me? Use my giftings, use my skills, not for my benefit, God, all for your benefit. So how do we avoid being the church nobody wants to attend? We open the door and we look to Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today just thanking you for who you are, thanking you for your majesty, God, and thanking you that you did love us enough so much, God, you do not leave us in our sin debt, yet you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die for us. God, I'm so thankful. I surrendered my life to you when I was just a six-year-old boy on the middle panel of my couch, God. With my parents on both sides, God, I was able to surrender my life to you, Lord, not knowing a whole lot about the Bible or about you, but I knew enough to to know that you could save me. God, would you be with us this next week? Would you allow us to look to you, to focus our eyes on you, to open the door, to answer whatever calling you might be placing on our life, God? And let's start 2021 with our eyes on you. For it's in your name we pray.